Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Catholic Light. On today's episode, we will discuss the last line of the Apostles' Creed, which is, I believe, in life everlasting. And it's here that the Catechism briefly discusses more about heaven, purgatory, and hell. So we'll focus on purgatory. And after this, we have one more episode in which we'll finish up part one of the Catechism. So there are four parts to the Catechism. We will finish part one at the end of next episode, the next episode. And because the four parts are not evenly divided or are not equal, um, by the end of next episode, you will be a third of the way through the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So thanks again for joining me on this, this journey and for persevering. It's awesome. So way to go. Uh, when I think about purgatory, I think I had some notion of it uh, at some point from my Catholic upbringing, but it was when my family and I went to Medjugorje on pilgrimage um, that I first started to think about it more or heard more about it. Uh, so I might have mentioned that Medjugorje, this place in Bosnia and Herzegovina where the Blessed Mother has been appearing since 1981, was instrumental in my parents' deepening of faith, kind of, I don't know that I would say reconversion, but they, they grew more in their Catholic faith. And as a result, our family grew more in our Catholic faith. And uh, my parents actually started leading pilgrimages to Medjugorje. So they were so moved by it. And upon returning from Medjugorje, people would ask, like, where did you go? What was that about? What did you do? That over time, my parents started bringing groups there. And so each time we would go, um, you know, there was kind of discussion of some something going on in the church or some book or some movement. And during this one trip, there was this book out um, about a woman named Maria Sima who reputedly received um, visions, visits from uh, people from purgatory. So this is not you know, officially approved by the Catholic Church. I don't think it has an imprimatur or anything like that. But the book was called Get Us Out of Here, and it was written about this woman who had dreams, visions, um, interlocutions from people from purgatory. So from the outside looking in, you could say like, oh, is that like what people describe as being haunted or, you know, visited by spirits from the other world? So um, I don't know exactly how it worked, but as I heard people talk about this, and um, I read a portion of the book myself, the Holy Souls come to Maria Sima, and they ask her to pray for them, to offer up sacrifices, prayer, fasting, uh, something for them so that they can be purified and brought to heaven. In some cases, these souls come to her, reputedly came to her and said, hey, I never taught my son, my daughter, X, Y, and Z, you know, about the Eucharist or how to pray the rosary or the importance of confession, please go to him or her and explain this, teach this, and then I will be purified and brought to heaven. So again, I don't know that this is necessarily approved by the church, um, but it was influential in my understanding of purgatory in that I grew to understand a little more, hey, we get a lifetime to live our lives as best as we can, and then we die, we stand before God, and because nothing unclean, nothing imperfect can enter heaven, 
by his mercy and justice, there's this place, the state of being known as purgatory, where we continue to be purified, cleansed, um, have things worked out in us so that we can enter heaven uh, for all of eternity. So I don't know if it was from this book or, or something else in my husband's life, but um, he started to kind of think about the souls in purgatory, pray for the souls in purgatory, and he said at one point, like, I don't want to be haunted, you know, like this woman, Maria Sima, um, so I'm just going to pray, pray, pray for the souls in purgatory that they may be purified and brought to heaven so that they don't come and visit me. And um, what I think began is kind of like a, a silly talking point. Um, became, I would say in him, a a devotion and real commitment to praying for the souls in purgatory, which is a beautiful thing. So we believe that, um, I think as we talked about on a a previous episode, the the church is composed of three groups, the church triumphant, those in heaven, the church suffering, those in purgatory, and the church militant, those on earth. And the souls in purgatory cannot pray for themselves. So they don't pray for the souls in heaven because the souls in heaven do not need anyone's prayers. They've already won um, the battle, fought the good fight, won the battle, and are with God. And um, they cannot pray for themselves, so they pray for us, those on earth still fighting the good fight. And then we on earth can pray for the souls in purgatory. We can pray for ourselves and each other. And so it's actually one of the spiritual works of mercy. We're often uh, familiar, talk about the corporal works of mercy, so feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, visiting the imprisoned, etc. But the spiritual works of mercy include praying for the dead. And so um, as we close out this month of November, in which we celebrate the Feast of All Saints and we pray for and recognize all souls on November 2nd, we continue to pray for the souls in purgatory. I also grew in my understanding, and I would say love, of the souls in purgatory and praying for the souls in purgatory as I continued to teach. So I taught high school theology for 12 years. As I continued to teach about the concept of purgatory and then we would pray in each of my classes for the repose of the souls of purgatory every November. Um, The teaching on purgatory, it's also a great way to illustrate the tripod of truth or the font of divine revelation, the way that sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium all work together to faithfully hand on the truth, the teachings of Jesus Christ, so that today, in 2022, we can get the same teaching, the same truth that Christ entrusted to people, you know, over 2,000 or about 2,000 years ago. So sacred scripture is the written word of God. Sacred tradition is the oral preaching of the apostles handed down from bishop to bishop to bishop. And then the magisterium is the teaching authority of the church, the pope and the bishops in communion with him, um, who receives that revelation through scripture, the written word, tradition, the spoken word, and then faithfully hands on the, the truth of God, the truth and teachings of Jesus Christ. So we'll see in on the second half of the episode, we'll read paragraphs 1020 through 1041, and it's paragraphs 1030 through 1032, which specifically uh, talk about purgatory. And we'll see in the footnotes um, references to scripture, tradition, and the magisterium. And I think it, it succinctly and very beautifully illustrates um, how the teaching of purgatory has always been a part of our 
our faith, our tradition, our understanding, and it's been faithfully handed on for for 2,000 years. Um, it's not something that you know just popped up in the church at some point in church history, um, but has always been a part of a part of our deposit of faith. So let's look at uh, paragraphs 1030 and the beginning of 1031. Paragraph 1030 says, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Paragraph 1031 goes on to say, The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. So purgatory, once uh, we die, stand before God, if we go to purgatory, we are going to heaven. So it's not like you go from purgatory to hell. Once you're in purgatory, the end game is heaven. Um, but it's a place of purification, purgation, so that, you know, if we think visually about it, any dirt, any impurities, anything that needs to be scrubbed away, burned away, cleansed, um, is accomplished there so that we can enter heaven. Because the scripture tells us nothing unclean, uh, nothing impure can enter heaven. Sometimes people will confuse purgatory or the teaching on purgatory with limbo. Um, at some point in church history, people talked about limbo as this place, as the name implies, between heaven and hell, where um, I think kind of when you encounter a conundrum, like, you know, let's say uh, a little baby who has not been baptized dies, um, what what do you, how, how do you think about that? You know, where can this, where does this child go? So he or she cannot enter heaven because he or she has the stain of original sin on his or her soul. But it's not fair. Um, it seems unjust, and certainly that God would not want this child to go to hell. And so people would talk about uh, this place called limbo, where it's kind of in between heaven and hell, and it was kind of like this um, like waiting place for souls or concepts that we didn't really know what with what we should do. And then at some point, people started saying, like, oh, didn't the church do away with limbo? Like, that's not a thing anymore. Um, and so on a side note to clarify limbo, because, again, oftentimes that's brought up when people talk about purgatory. Limbo was never like a teaching or a place that the church constructed and then when no longer needed, did away with. It was just a way of, of talking um, that people used to kind of help wrap our heads around uh, again, situations like an unbaptized baby who dies. Like, what do we do with that? So first, um, you know, we recognize that God loves each and every one of us infinitely and wants us to be in heaven. Um, so it's not like God sitting up there with, on, you know, on top of a mountain with his arms crossed, like, hmm, let's see, did you take all the boxes? Okay, fine, you can come in, into heaven. No, God wants that little unbaptized baby. God wants... Um, you know, the, the most horrific sinner in heaven because he created each and every one of us, loves us, wants what's best for us, and that is heaven, communion with him for all of eternity. Secondly, we can recognize that God is above and beyond his sacraments. So he has entrusted the seven sacraments to us as ways of drawing close to him, of as ways of, of meeting him on earth. Um, but God is not bound by his sacraments. So Again, for example, a little baby who is not baptized and dies with original sin on his or her soul, 
It's not as though God, you know, looks at that child and says like, mm, sorry, you didn't get baptized, can't get in here. No, God uh, gives us these sacraments to help us, um, but it's not like he is then bound by them. Like he can't, you know, find another way to draw a soul close to him. And so God can do anything any way he wants. But when it comes to the concept of purgatory, it, it makes sense intellectually. Okay, heaven is this this beautiful place, we believe, what scripture and tradition tell us, um, this beautiful place where nothing unclean, nothing impure, nothing imperfect can enter and be. And so if we die still with the effects of sin on our souls, um, it makes sense that there is this place where we can be finally purified so as to enter heaven clean, purified, and ready to enjoy the beatific vision for all of eternity. So this is another one of those teachings of the church that, as we talked about last week, it's not like we you know, close our eyes, stick our hands out in front of us, and, and just blindly you know, follow what God through the church is teaching us. Purgatory makes sense. Um, so you know, we think about just simple examples throughout life. Um, I'm about to attend a wedding, so I'm going to take a shower and dress up beautifully for this fancy event. Um, if I drive a car and it gets muddy, it makes sense that I would wash it off before I park it in the garage. Um, when I return from a trip with a suitcase full of dirty laundry, it makes sense to you know, wash the clothes before I fold them up and put them back in my drawer. I think I used an example or used laundry as an example last week or a couple weeks ago. So you can see which chore is, is foremost in my mind right now in this stage of life. Um, lastly, we'll see in some of the scripture passages referenced in the footnotes about purgatory um, when people are working with metal, uh, whether it's gold or silver, if there are impurities on it, that metal is placed in the fire so that the impurities can be burned away and then that metal can be radiantly, beautifully clean. Um, so we see, we, we know intuitively and we see in a variety of examples from life that it makes sense to purify, wash, clean something before it's used for the next thing or before moving on to the next thing. And so purgatory, like many teachings of the Catholic faith, uh, makes sense. Again, this teaching comes to us through God's written word and spoken word. So if if you have a physical catechism in front of you and you flip to paragraphs 1030 through 1032, you'll see a number of footnotes at the bottom that reference various scripture passages. Uh, it references a pope, Pope Benedict II, and something he wrote concerning purgatory called Benedictus Deus. It also references a number of church councils, so the Council of Florence, which took place in 1439, and the Council of Trent, which took place in 1563. So if you're following along in the physical catechism, you'll see paragraph 1030 does not have any footnotes, but then paragraph 1031 has uh, footnote 606, 607, and 608. If you look at the bottom of the page, you'll see, again, those church councils referenced, Pope Benedict XII referenced, and then paragraph uh, 607 and 608 reference a number of scripture passages. So 1 Corinthians 3.15, 1 Peter 1.7, Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, and then paragraph 1032, uh, 
this last paragraph discussing purgatory references footnotes 609, 610, and 611, which again, if you look at the bottom of the page, you'll see the Council of Lyon, which took place in 1274, is referenced. St. John Chrysostom, one of the great saints of the church, is referenced. And then uh, we see another scripture passage, Job chapter 1, verse 5. So uh, lots of examples of sacred scripture. Uh, the magisterium, so Pope Benedict Twelfth, and then these church councils where the Pope and the bishops in communion with him were gathered together to continue to interpret and hand on, teach about the faith. And then sacred tradition, which is the oral preaching of the apostles handed down throughout church history from bishop to bishop to bishop, has now been recorded in the catechism. Um, so we'll see, or we see in, for example, paragraph 1032, about halfway through the paragraph, it says, from the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them. So you can look back in church history and see that the church has always done this practice of praying for the dead, interceding for the dead, offering alms and sacrifices for the dead. And that has been handed on faithfully um, by the church, okay, throughout now millennia. And then now it's recorded, it's written down. So this oral preaching, this tradition has been written down. And so, um, you know, we can read about it and not just hear about it. So let's take a look at a couple of these scripture passages. Uh, the first passage, was, which is referenced in Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1032, we see it in footnote 609, is Second Maccabees, so there's two books of Maccabees in the Old Testament. The second book of Maccabees, chapter 12, verse 46. If you flip to Second Maccabees in the Old Testament, you'll see um, towards the end of paragraph, excuse me, the end of chapter 12, uh, the section called entitled Expiation for the Dead. So Judas Maccabeus has just fought this battle with his fellow Jews. And as they walk the battlefield, they see that um, a number of their fellow soldiers who died, when they pull, pull aside their tunic or shirt, they see that a number of these men were wearing these little amulets or basically these little trinkets um, implying that they were following Yahweh, but also kind of hedging their bets with um, uh, by appealing to another god. Um, verse 40 says, But under the tunic of each of the dead they found amulets sacred to the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbids the Jews to wear. So Judas Maccabeus prays and encourages his fellow soldiers who are still alive to pray for the dead to pray that these men who died wearing um, these amulets, potentially having committed idolatry before they died, they pray together that God will purify these dead men and bring them to heaven. So uh, let's see, verse 43 says, he, Judas Maccabeus, he then took up a collection among all his soldiers amounting to 2,000 silver drachmas, which he sent to Jerusalem to provide for an expiatory sacrifice. In doing this, he acted in a very excellent and noble way, inasmuch as he had the resurrection of the dead in view. For if he were not expecting the fallen to rise again, it would have been useless and foolish to pray for them in death. But if he did this with a view to the splendid reward that awaits those who had gone to rest in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. 
Thus, he made atonement for the dead that they might be freed from this sin. So we see in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews, the chosen people of God, our big brothers and sisters in the Catholic faith praying for the dead. A couple other passages that are then referenced in the New Testament are 1 Corinthians 3.15 and 1 Peter 1.7. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, But if someone's work is burned up, that one will suffer loss. The person will be saved, but only as through fire. And then 1 Peter 1.7 says, So that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that is perishable, even though tested by fire, may prove to be for praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we see a couple passages in the, the New Testament talking about um, our impurities, the effects of our sin being burned away um, as though through fire. Okay, So purgatory is often pictured as this fiery place, um, unlike hell. Um, it's a, a good fire which burns away, purifies the impurities so that we can enter heaven radiantly shining and clean. A final scripture passage that's referenced here in the footnotes of the catechism portion that deals with purgatory comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12, verse 31. That says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. You might read that or hear that and think like, hey, I thought anything could be forgiven um, by God. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is essentially saying, God, you can't forgive me. So whether we, we think a sin is, is too horrific, too disgusting, um, whenever we say, God, you can't forgive me, God, who respects our free will, who does not force himself upon us, says, okay, I can't forgive you. As long as we're in a stance, you might picture like being in this stance of, you know, our, our faces turned away from God, our hands up saying like, you can't forgive this. God says, okay, I can't forgive this. As, lo as long as we're in that state, um, God respects our free will and doesn't force his forgiveness on us. However, the good news is the moment we say, you know, just kidding, you can forgive me, please forgive me, uh, God then, you know, enters in and, and forgives us. So as long as we remain in a state of, God, you can't forgive me, we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, and God, respecting our free will, does not forgive us. But then again, the moment we say, God, forgive me, uh, please forgive me, you can forgive me, he then enters in to forgive us. So that's, that's the one sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that can't be forgiven because God respects our free will and does not force his forgiveness on us. Um, and so as we've talked about in previous episodes, uh, let's continue to pray. Um, you know, that second part of the Hail Mary, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. That no matter where we are, what the circumstances are, what our state of being is at the moment of our death, that the Blessed Mother will be by our side and help us not commit sin, uh, that, that sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, so that God can enter in, forgive us, and then, you know, potentially we go to purgatory, be purified of the effects of our sin and, and enter in into heaven and be with him for all of eternity. So those are the scripture passages that are highlighted by the catechism, 1 Corinthians 3.15, 1 Peter 1.7, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, and then the Old Testament passage, 2 Maccabees 12.46, that all communicate to us this understanding of purgatory. 
As I mentioned before, we also see in the catechism that it has been a practice of the church to pray for the dead. So um, again, when you think about it logically, for those in heaven, they don't need our prayers. For those in hell, um, our prayers are not effective. They have already chosen against God and are separated from him for all of eternity. And so to pray for the dead implies this other place, this place where souls are saved, but they need to be purified purged, cleansed, so that they can enter heaven. And so our prayers for the dead are effective um, for those who, who are in this place or this state of being. So we have sacred scripture, we have sacred tradition, um, those two streams in the font of divine revelation. So again, picture the font of divine revelation uh, as having two streams. God reveals himself through his written word, sacred scripture, through his spoken word, sacred tradition. And then it's the job of the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, the pope and the bishops in communion with him to kind of catch or receive those two streams, to receive sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and interpret, hand on, faithfully teach uh, this truth of God, this truth entrusted to the church. And so again, we see in the footnotes a couple different church councils and a pope referenced who throughout church history has continued to hand on, faithfully interpret, guided by the Holy Spirit, this, this teaching on purgatory. So as we've talked about in terms of heaven, uh, eternity starts now. So we get glimpses of God willing heaven now. We also get glimpses or can get glimpses of purgatory. So eternity extends both ways on the timeline. It's not like it, it just starts the moment we die. Um, but even now we can be purged, we can be purified. And so that's why the church encourages, or one of the reasons why the church encourages offering up sacrifices, doing penances, so that we can be purified, um, the effects of our sins can be purged, cleansed from our souls, so that we can enter more fully into communion with God. So maybe throughout this, this season of Advent, um, pick a little sacrifice or something you could do and, and pray that God will use that to purify us, to purge us, to cleanse us of the effects of our sin so that um, we can enter into communion with him, not just one day, but starting even now. Let's also continue to pray for our deceased family members and friends, and maybe um, those who have no one to pray for them. So I like to pray for you know, all of my family and friends, and for the souls who have no one to pray for them. God, may you purify them and bring them to heaven this day. And so as we end this first half of the episode, let's once again pray um, that eternal rest prayer for the souls in purgatory, and then we'll take a brief break and we'll return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs 1020 through 1041. So we pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we thank you for um, this opportunity uh, this place, this state of being known as purgatory, to be cleansed of the effects of our sins so that we can enter into heaven with you one day. And so we pray for all those who might be there, especially our family members and friends, and especially those who have known to pray for them, that they may, you may purify them and bring them to heaven. As we pray, eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. Amen. May their soul and all the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, now I'll take a brief break and return on the second side to read our catechism selection for the day. Thanks for sticking with me. 
You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read paragraphs 1020 through 1041 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Article 12, I Believe in Life Everlasting. The Christian who unites his own death to that of Jesus views it as a step towards him and an entrance into everlasting life. When the Church for the last time speaks Christ's words of pardon and absolution over the dying Christian, seals him for the last time with a strengthening anointing, and gives him Christ in viaticum as nourishment for the journey, she speaks with gentle assurance. Go forth, Christian soul, from this world in the name of God, the Almighty Father, who created you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who suffered for you. In the name of the Holy Spirit, who was poured out upon you. Go forth, faithful Christian. May you live in peace this day. May your home be with God in Zion, with Mary, the Virgin Mother of God, with Joseph and all the angels and saints. May you return to your Creator, who formed you from the dust of the earth. May Holy Mary, the angels, and all the saints come to meet you as you go forth from this life. May you see your Redeemer face to face. The Particular Judgment Death puts an end to human life as the time open to either accepting or rejecting the divine grace manifested in Christ. The New Testament speaks of judgment primarily in its aspect of the final encounter with Christ in his second coming, but also repeatedly affirms that each will be rewarded immediately after death in accordance with his works and faith. The parable of the poor man Lazarus and the words of Christ on the cross to the good thief, as well as other New Testament texts, speak of a final destiny of the soul, a destiny which can be different for some and for others. Each man receives his eternal retribution in his immortal soul at the very moment of his death, in a particular judgment that refers his life to Christ, either entrance into the blessedness of heaven through a purification, or immediately, or immediate and everlasting damnation. At the evening of life, we shall be judged on our love. Heaven. Those who die in God's grace and friendship and are perfectly purified live forever with Christ. They are like God forever, for they see him as he is, face to face. By virtue of our apostolic authority, we define the following. According to the general disposition of God, the souls of all the saints and other faithful who died after receiving Christ's holy baptism, provided they were not in need of purification when they died, or if they then did need or will need some purification when they have been purified after death, already before they take up their bodies again and before the general judgment, and this since the ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into heaven, have been, are, and will be in heaven, in the heavenly kingdom and celestial paradise with Christ, joined to the company of the holy angels. Since the passion and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, these souls have seen and do see the divine essence with an intuitive vision, and even face to face, without the mediation of any creature. This perfect life with the Most Holy Trinity This communion of life and love with the Trinity, with the Virgin Mary, the angels, and all the blessed, is called heaven. Heaven is the ultimate end and fulfillment of the deepest human longings, the state of supreme, definitive happiness. To live in heaven is to be with Christ. The elect live in Christ, but they retain or rather find their true true identity, their own name. For life is to be with Christ. Where Christ is, there is life. There is the kingdom. By his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ has opened heaven to us. 
The life of the blessed consists in the full and perfect possession of the fruits of the redemption accomplished by Christ. He makes partners in his heavenly glorification, those who have believed in him and remain faithful to his will. Heaven is the blessed community of all who are perfectly incorporated into Christ. This mystery of blessed communion with God and all who are in Christ is beyond all understanding and description. Scripture speaks of it in images. Life, light, peace, wedding feast, wine of the kingdom, the Father's house, the heavenly Jerusalem, paradise. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Because of his transcendence, God cannot be seen as he is, unless he himself opens up his mystery to man's immediate contemplation and gives him the capacity for it. The church calls this contemplation of God in his heavenly glory the beatific vision. How great will your glory and happiness be to be allowed to see God, to be honored with sharing the joy of salvation and eternal light with Christ your Lord and God, to delight in the joy of immortality in the kingdom of heaven with the righteous and God's friends. In the glory of heaven, the blessed continue joyfully to fulfill God's will in relation to other men and to all creation. Already they reign with Christ. With him they shall reign forever and ever. The final purification or purgatory. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church, by reference to certain texts of scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that, before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. This teaching is also based on the practice of prayer for the dead, already mentioned in sacred scripture. Therefore, Judas Maccabeus made atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sin. From the beginning, the church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrage for them, above all the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that thus purified they may attain the beatific vision of God. The church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead. Let us help and commemorate them. If Job's sons were purified by their father's sacrifice, why would we doubt that our offerings for the dead bring them some consolation? Let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. Hell, we cannot be united with God unless we freely choose to love him. But we cannot love God if we sin gravely against him, against our neighbor, or against ourselves. He who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Our Lord warns us that we shall be separated from him if we fail to meet the serious needs of the poor and the little ones who are his brethren. To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love remains means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed is called hell. Jesus often speaks of Gehenna, of the unquenchable fire reserved for those who to the end of their lives refuse to believe and be converted, where both soul and body can be lost. 
Jesus solemnly proclaims that he will send his angels and they will gather all evildoers and throw them into the furnace of fire and that he will pronounce the condemnation, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. The teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. Immediately after death, the souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. The affirmations of sacred scripture and the teachings of the church on the subject of hell are a call to the responsibility incumbent upon man to make use of his freedom in view of his eternal destiny. They are at the same time an urgent call to conversion. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Since we know neither the day nor the hour, we should follow the advice of the Lord and watch constantly, so that when the single course of our earthly life is completed, we may merit to enter with him into the marriage feast and be numbered among the blessed, and not, like the wicked and slothful servants, be ordered to depart into the eternal fire, into the outer darkness where men will weep and gnash their teeth. God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin is necessary, and persistence in it until the end. In the Eucharistic liturgy and in the daily prayers of her faithful, the Church implores the mercy of God who does not want any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Father, accept this offering from your whole family. Grant us your peace in this life. Save us from a final damnation, and count us among those you have chosen. The Last Judgment the resurrection of all the dead, of both the just and the unjust, will precede the last judgment. This will be the hour when all who are in the tombs will hear the Son of Man's voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Then Christ will come in his glory and all the angels with him. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at the left. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. In the presence of Christ, who is truth itself, the truth of each man's relationship with God will be laid bare. The last judgment will reveal even to its further consequences the good each person has done or failed to do during his earthly life. All that the wicked do is recorded, and they do not know. When our God comes, he does not keep silence. He will turn towards those at his left hand. I placed my poor little ones on earth for you. I, as their head, was seated in heaven at the right hand of my Father. But on earth my members were suffering. My members on earth were in need. If you gave anything to my members, what you gave would reach their head. Would that you had known that my little ones were in need when I placed them on earth for you and appointed them as your stewards to bring your good works into my treasury." but you have placed nothing in their hands. Therefore, you have found nothing in my presence. The last judgment will come when Christ returns in glory. Only the Father knows the day and the hour. Only he determines the moment of its coming. Then, through his Son, Jesus Christ, he will pronounce the final word on all history. We shall know the ultimate meaning of the whole work of creation and of the entire economy of salvation and understand the marvelous ways by which his providence led everything towards its final end. 
The last judgment will reveal that God's justice triumphs over all the injustices committed by his creatures and that God's love is stronger than death. The message of the last judgment calls men to conversion while God is still giving them the acceptable time, the day of salvation. It inspires a holy fear of God and commits them to the justice of the kingdom of God. It proclaims the blessed hope of the Lord's return when he will come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. This brings us to the end of our catechism selection and the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me. Between now and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast and know that I'll be praying for you and please pray for me. In the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends and connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.